and welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. I'm Caroline Leifers. And I'm Kelsey Henry. And it is our pleasure today to be in conversation with Dr. Leah Richet. Leah, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, this is going to be great. So Leah, can you start by telling us a little bit about your journey to becoming a disability historian and then where you are today? Yeah, so I think one of the things that's different about my experience than other people is mental illness and disability was a part of my life, partially um, because it's everywhere actually, but also because my mom is a psychotherapist. Um, My dad is also a U.S. Vietnam veteran and he has post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. And so mental illness and disability was just a part of my growing up, right? So it was the same thing as going to summer camp and eating meals with the family. And I just accepted that as completely normal, um, which of course it is actually. And so as I grew up and got more and more into history, I was really interested in people like my dad. So other US Vietnam veterans, Um, he is from New Orleans. And so I was very interested in other Southern US Vietnam War vets, right? But I was also curious, I'm white, my dad is white. Uh, I was curious and also the black Southern experience. And I got in contact with a group of US Vietnam veterans with PTSD. Uh, Almost all of them had 100% um, disability with the Veterans Administration, which is uh, really high. Um, And they had had that since the 1970s, right, 1980s. And um, that was my senior thesis for college is trying to speak to these people, not about really what everybody wants to talk about, which is tell me the person that you killed and how long you cry at night, which I think are really gross questions, but actually questions that are more sincere. So the big thing I actually talked to them about was what were the things they wanted to come back home to, right? So as Southern vets, Uh, what were you interested in? And so a lot of them said uh, a cold beer. Um, They thought about a cold beer a lot in uh, Vietnam. And a lot of them talked about a place called the Varsity. The Varsity is in Atlanta. It's like a diner. Um, And they were like, I really wanted a Varsity milkshake. And I just loved that kind of visual of like a cold beer and a Varsity milkshake while you're in the jungles of Vietnam. And like still to this day, you're struggling with like kind of the tension of what happened decades ago to you. And so when I decided I wanted to get a PhD in history, I said to myself, well, I wonder how far back we can take PTSD. Obviously the US Civil War is our big war that we have here in the United States. And so I was curious if there were people with PTSD back then. And as you would suspect, yes, of course, because it's just an eternal condition that happens to humans when we're exposed to a lot of trauma. And one of the exciting things and probably disturbing too is that medical records from the US Civil War, both for civilians and soldiers is available at a lot of state archives, particularly in the South and the US South. And so I had access to them and I learned a lot about those people. And so what has happened since I've gotten my PhD is the realization that exploiting the suffering of disabled people um, is probably ethically completely wrong. And those medical records should not have been available to me. They are still, right? And so I didn't particularly agree with the idea of financially or professionally benefiting from the suffering of others. And so I decided instead to leave academia and go into now high school teaching. And so my kind of path has been all over the place, but really the kind of line 
of being a disability historian has been ever since I was a kid and still is up to today. Uh, thank you so much for sharing the many uh, circuitous routes that you took into disability history. I love this question about how people get into the work um, because often like when folks do that self-excavation, they find that their root isn't really about books that they read, but it's baked into the fabric of who they are. Um, so thank you for sharing that with us um, about kind of the deeper roots of your work in disability history. Um, this is a bit of a pivot, um, but I wanted to hear a little bit more about the work that you did uh, specifically on the history of murder suicides covered by newspapers in the 19th century. I think this was a part of your dissertation work, if I'm right about that. Yeah, so um, what was really interesting for me is I, I wandered around um, with my dissertation topic. Almost everything had to do with violence and um, that makes sense to me. Violence is again, one of those essential components to the human experience. Uh, and so I was very, very interested in seeing when violence shows up in the 1800s that isn't just these moments of medicalization, right? So like, what does the media look at with violence? And in particular, the thing that I kept running into was a very interesting phrase, which is domestic tragedy. And so once I realized that was some kind of strange code word in the 1890s for basically a murder-suicide, I got totally obsessed um, and I made a gigantic database of them. Uh, and so they were fascinating. Uh, one of the questions that then was posed to me was, can you really nail down the mental illness component of this? And so that's where I suddenly went into the medical records of people. Um, and that's where I got lost actually into these lunatic asylums and instead switched over to them. Murder suicides are really amazing, but basically what happens after they have a media report on them, they just disappear. There's no other records. Uh, and so sometimes you would see it happen once and it would never show up again. And so I was compiling just, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of these murder suicides, but they were just these almost clickbait kind of stories of people. Um, they were really sensational but then they were like flash and pan. They were like lightning strikes. They were just gone. And so I was like, no, 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 I want a deeper understanding of these families. And so that's where I had to switch over to these basically medical records and then try to find them from there. And so murder suicides were, were completely fascinating. And I, every single one of their stories was unbelievably sad. So there's like a gendered component for a lot of murder suicides, right? Um, men do a lot of murder suicides. They typically kill uh, family members or people um, who they're uh, sexually or romantically interested in. Um, nowadays we have mass suicide events or mass murder suicide events, right? Um, where school shooters are like the Las Vegas shooting. Um, and we don't see that in the 1890s. We haven't developed that yet. Um, but I think the more interesting thing for me, which I was one of the reasons why I thought these lunatic asylum records was where it should, where actually I should be spending my time is women who were killing their children in the 1890s. That was happening a lot. And the newspapers were really, really interested in them and they didn't cast them as villains, which is unusual for us in modernity because we went through a whole phase here in the United States where we saw women who killed their children as 
like the very worst of humanity. Uh, we really didn't give them the excuse of mental illness. Instead, we said, you'd have to go uh, to, straight to the death row. <laughs> um, and some of those famous cases, I think colored my understanding of how people would be in the 1890s. And what I found out was actually across the 1800s, they are very sympathetic towards women who are killing their children. Like absolutely from the South to the North, they, they don't have the same kind of intensity of hatred or discomfort. Um, there's a lot of sorrow involved. Um, and what was strange for me is seeing women say so similar things to what we see now with women who have postpartum psychosis, right? So there was a lot of like, I heard people talking about killing the baby, right? So like there was someone outside saying that, except for like, it's the 1890s. So they're like, people in the whole, like passing by in the wagon or telling me to kill my baby. These are really unique to the time period, but they were all kind of saying the same thing. Like I have to clean the baby, I have to clean, I have to make it clean and then would, you know, scour the skin off the baby. Uh, and so you're like, oh, postpartum psychosis, women who have killed their children now say very similar things, right? And so for me, I was trying to figure out like, hang on, <laughs> what what is going on? Like how, why is society treating these women so, differently. Um, and I mean, honestly, it was shocking because what I was finding, particularly when I started to redirect my focus to the U.S. South, to these lunatic asylums, was a lot of these women would come in having killed a child already, uh, being very violent, and they would be in the asylum. They basically would go through their psychotic episode, return to relative normal state, right? Um, and then they would be released and then they would do it again. Um, so they would attack um, their new child because they would get pregnant, have the new child, and they would attack the new child and they would come back. And so my murder suicide work kind of fed into trying to understand that whole situation better, which then eventually led me to these lunatic asylum reports to get the kind of behind the scenes, like what is going on in these people's households? Wow. I admittedly, I will say that I... I'm familiar with the coverage of infanticide, like more contemporary coverage of infanticide because I listen to a lot of true crime. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a very popular subgenre of true crime, uh, like podcasts, literature, murder suicides, particularly looking at mothers and children. And I know that like late 20th century, like 21st century coverage, as you stated, is more keen on criminalizing those women in, in the media instead of pathologizing them within a more medicalized framework. Right. And I'm really curious. I mean, I'm fascinated um, just looking at uh, historical context and circumstance under what, what circumstances are mothers who kill their children seen as sick Mm. And under what circumstances are they seen as bad and right. what's the difference yeah. um, which kind of brings me back to another question that I have for you the, the connection between murder suicide and insanity is not a straightforward one um, but that's what was really drawing you in um, kind of the, the rationale for these crimes as being acts of insanity coming from a place of illness um, and I'm curious about what, what was going on that you found in the 19th century that would lead to a more sympathetic evaluation of these mothers uh, mm -hmm. by labeling them as insane rather than criminal. 
And so I think one of the fascinating things about that, right, is the immediate question of what's going on with gender in the 1890s that's not happening in the 1990s, right? So like, ha what's happened? Why have women changed so much? Uh, and it's obviously not women who are changing, it's men who are changing their decision on what women are like and what women are capable of. And so I think it was, it was so interesting to read some of these cases because, you know, you would see like a woman who clearly like everybody in her family, her husband, her brother, her father, they're all doctors, okay? So this is a, a real person. Um, and she has the experience where clearly she has postpartum psychosis, as we would say today. Um, she's very unstable, like very, very, very unstable. And her husband has decided we're not gonna institutionalize her. We're not gonna put her in, in an institution. She's gonna stay at home. And he actually writes a medical paper about this, that it's best to have your mentally ill loved ones at home uh, instead of being in an institution. And so she's very unstable. She's probably ex exhibited violent uh, symptoms already. He doesn't quite admit that in his medical report. She decides she's left alone. Her husband has left to work. She has two servants, right? Because she's a wealthy white woman. So they have two servants. She sends one away to get something. And she tells the other one, the other one is still here and sends that one away to get something. And she brings her three kids up to the top room of their house and she blindfolds them each of them and she shoots each of them <laughs> saying that this is a game that they're playing and then she kills herself. And it is this intense 10 minute period where her, uh, her father, her brother and her husband are all kind of realizing almost simultaneously, I think she's actually alone in the house with the kids and they all rush to the house, right? And it's this horrific scene of, like bloodshed, right? Everywhere. And one of the things that was wild to me was, I was like, this would be the moment where you would say, you know, how could you? Like, you should have institutionalized her. She would have kept away from the children. And instead, there's three little coffins and her coffin, and they're buried at the same time. It's an enormous funeral. There's people in the streets. It's this huge sympathetic story. They're like the little uh, coffins all have flowers on them. She has flowers on hers. And it's this interesting outpouring of emotion from working class people for this incredibly wealthy family, in part because of the media representation as very sympathetic. It's a sensational drama. It is a domestic tragedy, right? And so the whole thing is understood as insanity is as being like a really sympathetic thing. Like she's affected by insanity and like she couldn't help herself, even though to us, this feels like, wow, this is incredibly premeditated. And like, you might just have wanted to say, no, she's a murderer. She's a bad person. She's a murderer. And so when you look at, you know, these kind of, uh, events today, right? Um, what you're saying is totally true, Kelsey, that there's a lot of attention because we find this really grotesque. And a lot of people get really cruel about it very quickly, uh, where they, they there is no, this has nothing to do with mental illness. This was an intention on your part to drown your children in the bathtub. Uh, and it's not like that for women with postpartum psychosis. They really are not aware of what they're doing in the same way that you or I would it's not like that. Um, and so somehow we forgot that in about a hundred year span. Um, but the amount of sympathy for these women in the 
1880s, 1890s is really unreal. And so we clearly have shifted our understanding of what's happening with women when they do that. And by we, I really do mean probably men and probably the medical um, view of this whole situation, which is we've taken out mental illness from it and put, I think, darker ideas into what mothers are even doing in these situations, which is, you know, you hate children, you hate your children, you hate being a mother. And so the answer for, I think, for a lot of states in the United States is, okay, well, then you should be executed too. And that's really not what's happening in much of the 1800s across the United States. They really are not saying, okay, well, now you should never be around children or you should be executed. They really are saying, oh, you need treatment if you've survived your suicide attempt and you can have children again. That's really, really interesting. I mean, we often hear about um, labels like insanity as being stigmatizing. And it's really interesting to hear an example of how, in this case, actually, they're kind of a channel into a more sympathetic understanding to a situation. So Kelsey and I, I think, are both really interested in hearing more about the archive that you um, arrived at, right, for your PhD dissertation. I know you said you've looked at a couple different institutions. So can you tell us more about these archives? about the significance of this archive, and then, of course, the ethical concerns that you alluded to um, when you engaged with these stories. I think if you could just expand on that, we'd be really interested. Yeah, so uh, when I was trying to figure out where would I find lunatic asylum records, I thought, well, surely there's none of those available. Um, and the answer was strange. It was particularly for Georgia. I got my PhD at the University of Georgia. So I said to myself, well, I can find uh, local people's stories. Um, and South Carolina obviously is adjacent um, to Georgia. And so I said, okay, well, I can go up there. And actually I didn't make my <laughs> dissertation, but I did the same with Virginia. Virginia actually has a multitude of lunatic asylums. Um, their population is more, but actually really they're just paying a lot more, uh, like literally paying more uh, for mental health facilities. And so those are the three states initially. There's so much information on Virginia, I had to drop it. But all three of the um, lunatic asylums put their records into the state archives. And when you look at the state archives, so if you look at the finding aid, it says uh, particularly the central state hospital, for example, so like the latest name, right? And so when I am dealing with it, it's the Georgia State Lunatic Idiot and Epileptic Asylum. It changes names, right? Um, and eventually at some point it's called the Georgia Sanitarium because that was like a fancy pretty way of saying somewhere between lunatic asylum and hospital. Um, and so what's cool about this is for me, a young graduate student, I was like, oh, wow, I could go an hour and a half and I can see these records. That's great. And then when you go there and you open up the microfilm and you put the little roll on and you turn on the light, it really was like seeing just ghost after ghost after ghost after ghost. And I was not prepared for how deep in some ways, these medical records were going. Um, these medical records, particularly at Georgia, uh, talk about women's menstrual cycles. They talk a lot about um, people ripping off their clothes. They talk about people vomiting. Uh, you know, they talk about traumatic uh, injuries that they've given themselves or other people. Um, and they do it very quickly and easily, right? Because these are medical records. They are also incomplete. 
And I can tell why no one has looked at them before and it wasn't ethical, the problems that, no, it was because these are incomplete records and to tell these stories is really difficult. And so people just ignored them. And I actually resented that idea so terribly much <laughs> that I was like, no, 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 these are disabled people. They have stories, we need to talk about them. Their suffering was real and their story deserved to be told because they are worthy people. The problem though, that increasingly happened is I then went to South Carolina and saw the same thing. And then I went to Virginia and I saw the same thing was, okay, but no, really, this is the suffering of disabled people. Um, they were marginalized in their time. They're marginalized in mine. Every time I spoke to people about my project, uh, when it was just a PhD project, people said the creepiest things to me, uh, where they were like, ooh, mental illness, that's so hot right now. <laughs> And I was like, oh, that was the grossest thing you could have possibly said. <laughs> oh, no. Um, you know, lots of just really like, oh, man, you're going to get a job. And I was like, because I'm studying people's worst possible moments and like that's where your brain went. And so I, I struggled for years on even how to organize this thing. Right. Because I have something like. I think it ended up being 1300 in Georgia and like 2600 or something in South Carolina. And it probably was like five, 10,000 people in Virginia. And so there was a massive amount of people. And so like, I can tell individual stories, I can do data analysis, which I did on the larger populations. And this was only for the 1800s, uh, in particular the 1860s. And so to really even do the whole thing would have been like, this is so many people. And so what ended up happening for me is even though I loved going to the archive and I love seeing these people, it became kind of disturbing ethically um, because I know disabled people. My father is obviously a person with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, but like those are my people. And so then to be like, oh, my medical records, your medical records, her medical records, their medical records could one day be in someone's dissertation, could one day in a book that makes money on Amazon. I was like, oh, this feels very strange. I don't particularly know if I wanna be a part of this. Um, particularly since like I've told y'all already, it's like, you know, these are like really intense moments in people's lives. And it's like their deepest, deepest moments. Um, and I was interested in the 1860s, right? And so in the US South, that means uh, right before the US Civil War, during the US Civil War and right afterwards, which is a period called Reconstruction. And so Reconstruction is where enslaved Black folks suddenly became free in these US Southern states. They're very weird about that. And so a lot of these people come in and they are in terrible condition, both physically and mentally. And these are some of the only records I've seen that describe these people like this. And so I was like, wow, I want to tell that story. But then again, like, how do you tell that story without dishonoring them and also not in any way benefiting from their suffering? And I was like, oh, I can't. <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna back off from this for a few years. One day, maybe I'll figure this out. But like, certainly in this uh, kind of ugly pursuit that academia has right now for, well, you gotta get a job, you gotta get a job. I was like, I can't do that to these people. Like they, they did not suffer this way. They did not struggle this way for me to really succeed off their deaths, right? I'm not gonna do that. And so, uh, you know, the archives are there. I know other people have used them. I know other people have published uh, some of their lives and deaths and that's fine. That's completely fine. I personally just couldn't do it. Uh, at least thus far, I haven't figured out a way 
to do it uh, responsibly. It's, uh, it's really interesting to hear you talk about this, Leah. And uh, I have to credit my colleagues, Mark Sandel and Will Van Aragon for this insight. I'm uh, not Jewish, but there's a Jewish practice. Sorry, I don't speak Hebrew, so um, apologies to our Jewish listeners because I'll probably mispronounce this. But it's something like Hesed Shel Emet. And it literally means um, something along the lines of a charity of true loving kindness or an act of true loving kindness. And it refers to the practice of caring for the dead. And of course, as historians, that is our job, right? We care for the dead. And I think we often feel that to care for the dead means you have to sort of like resurrect them and show them to the world. That is how you care for them. But in fact, the thing that makes this act so sacred in Jewish understanding is it is an act of loving kindness that cannot be reciprocated. So you, as the person who cares for the dead, really can't get anything back from it. It is an act of complete giving, right? And perhaps as historians, we need to think about caring for the dead by letting them rest. Yeah, makes sense of what you're saying, because I agree. Um, and so I think Caroline's point is really, really interesting for me um, because it would be, I think, one thing to do what I, I'm pretty sure other historians have done when they've used this material, which is just go to the archive. Um, it's on microfilm, right, which is its own kind of glowing box of magic. There's also the ledger books themselves, which you can see, which I think is fascinating. I'm a very kinesthetic, physical person, um, experiential, and so I really love being like, this is the book that the doctor had where they were taking notes, like, that's so interesting, right? And so I think that's one version. And I, it makes sense to me that detachment, that dissociation we have from the people themselves, if you just look at those two things, right? This microfilm, this book. That's not what I did though. I then went to where those people uh, were buried, right? So I went to where they lived um, because I was like, I can do this, anybody can do this story. It's right there, right? And so I was like, no, 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 I wanna go find them, like literally their bones. I wanna find their bones in the ground. And that's difficult, I suppose. <laughs> um, but I was like, this is the most important part. This is the most interesting part. And so, you know, my partner, my husband, uh, uh, Dr. Derek Ingermeyer, he went all around the South with me. Absolutely amazing. Uh, that way you can see everywhere in Georgia, everywhere in South Carolina, and we went to Virginia and Alabama and Florida too. Uh, and it was fascinating because you would find these people on these isolated hilltops, um, you know, their obelisks slowly shifting with the soil erosion, right? And you would see him and you'd be like, oh, it's AJ. I, it's, I found him. I found AJ. And you would be like, oh, look at you right here. I, I saw you on microfilm. I saw you on the book. And, you know, you had suicidal ideation. It's in the 18, like 62, you know, like in the middle of the Civil War, your family brought you down from Rome, Georgia, from Ella J, which is like nowhere, small town. They brought you like 100 plus miles down to Milledgeville, like in the middle of a war to try and find you, find you sanctuary. And instead, you leave, right? Possibly everyone feeling, oh, you're cured. I find that same person in the mortality census here in the United States. We had a couple times where we did um, amazing, uh, a death census, which is like a guy came to your door and he said, did anybody die last year? And you said, yeah, my mom did. And he, they said, what's your mom die of? And you were like, a cat scratched her. And they said, cat scratched her, even if that's not what happened. Cause like, it's just you, whatever you say, right? 
And so I find AJ again in the mortality census and he has committed suicide. He shot himself actually. And otherwise I just would have seen this medical record saying, oh, he has suicidal kind of tendencies. And then I would have seen his obelisk. But now I have this third piece of evidence which says, oh no, he committed suicide. And so that extra step for me, I think has made it completely impossible to do this without like really having to slow down. And I really didn't appreciate how academia pushed me to rush to publish. Uh, this publisher parish made it totally distasteful. I, I was like, ah, y'all are just being gross. This is gross. I was like, you can't go to some of these places that I've been to and been like, yes, I can't wait to talk about you. You know, it's like, I, I literally stood over these people's graves and watched, you know, like, okay, this is where you were. This is where you are now. And for me to say, okay, okay, how am I gonna, how am I gonna publish this in the right way uh, to succeed is so bizarre and strange. And I was like, no, 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 no. I, I, I saw where you died. Like I saw the asylum, I saw your house and now you're here. And so I have to be careful with this. I have to be really, really careful. And it's been fine for me. Like I, I'm actually a successful person. So like academia is not the only route to like thrive in life. And so I still think one day I'm gonna figure out exactly how to do this appropriately. And so I'm not worried. They exist without me. Uh, they have always existed since their deaths. And so knowing their stories, I think benefits uh, me emotionally. But for now, I'm definitely not going to, I don't know, exploit them to have some other kind of renown or reputation. Everything that you just said, Leah, made me reflect more deeply on uh, when I think about history and ethics and methodology. And I had never heard that phrase before, Caroline, about how like doing the work of history is caring for the dead. And that just had a profound impact on me in terms of reframing the kind of work that we do. And I think that Leah, you really beautifully demonstrated um, what it means to care for the dead as a historian in practice. And you're so right that the pacing, the, the publish or perish model of academia that so many people are trapped in prevents, um, like puts an outer limit on uh, kind of the ethical reach of historical scholarship in a way that makes me uncomfortable as well. And what you were just describing about really um, like not only looking at medical records to understand your historical subjects, but going to their homes and looking at census records and going and finding their headstones, like finding the places where they were buried, demonstrates such a profound degree of care um, and really illustrates how deeply you thought about the ethics of historical work. Um, and th the next question that I have is a truly, it's a complicated one given everything that you've just said, um, because I'd love to hear more about like if there were particular stories or people that really grabbed you um, and impacted you deeply when you were doing the research that you were doing. But I also wanna hold the ethical complexities that you're naming. Um, I think that you're, you're stating kind of contradictory, if not contradictory, competing desires between honoring the marginalized dead, which I think is language that you use, 
by um, exploring their, their records and their histories um, and wanting to, I mean, I think that the whole language and history around giving voice or restoring agency is really vexed. <laughs> Um, and there are a lot of ethical <laughs> ethical issues there, but I also think that the desire to make sure that those archives, what we have there isn't lost, is also an ethical imperative, but of course you don't want to profit off of those stories. So I think that you're demonstrating a conundrum in history between wanting to do some sort of recovery, like reparative work around the marginalized dead and records that could be otherwise lost, and not wanting to dishonor the dead by profiting off of their stories. Um, and that's a, it's a really ethically tangled spot to be in. Um, and I'm wondering, speaking from that place, uh, do you want to share stories about the people that you found? Um, do you feel like um, anonymizing those stories, but still telling them does some ethical work that is helpful or useful? Um, yeah, I'll leave the question at that. Yeah, I think one of the things that is actually really interesting is I've talked to uh, a few um, UK disability historians who do mental illness and they make it anonymous. Uh, and it's that was an interesting moment for me uh, because I, it was suggested to me, we'll just make them anonymous. Uh, and I was like, oh, actually, I'm not saying this is shameful. Um, that's not actually what I think at all. So I, I don't read these people's stories, um, even people who, um, you know, seemingly are, quote, bad people, you know, who murder people uh, and end up at the asylum. Uh, I, I don't actually see any of this as shameful or stigmatized. Like this is just a part of life. This is what happens when people have mental illness. Sometimes they harm themselves or other people. And so that's that's fine. Like there's nothing to do about that. Uh, and so to be like, oh, well, their descendants might be upset. Why? This is just reality. That, that would be strange if no one in your gigantic uh, ancestral line has, no one has mental illness. No one's ever done anything that's concerning to you? Like, uh, probably no, They've, there's probably been moments of mental illness and like, that's just reality. Uh, and so I thought that was very interesting. Um, it's also like I've told y'all publicly accessible, other people have published on this. And so the archives are just gonna keep that up. There's, there's nothing to do about it. Um, my dissertation I think is available on the internet at this point. Uh, and so you're like, well, all right, you know. <laughs> Um, a lot of this material can be found again, you know, on ancestry.com. It's like the census and the mortality census describes people as, uh, you know, idiot or imbecile, right? Okay. And so I'm only creating uh, a particular story, right? And so I don't want to make people anonymous. I think it's very interesting that these people struggled and suffered this way. I think that finding these very, very specific people and tracing their whole um, lives to their deaths and what's happened to their body ever since is fascinating, but doing so appropriately, carefully, responsibly is where that gets very unsettling for me because I'm not worried about y'all 
knowing oh, there's a guy named Dr. Joseph Simpson and he served in this particular Confederate, you know, infantry and this was his family. It's like, you could all find that. That's, I, I wasn't doing anything really magical or amazing. Um, but how we then talk about Joseph is really the next problem, right? Joseph, he got typhoid fever in the middle of the US Civil War very early on. It kind of ran through his um, regiment, typhoid fever spreads um, due to obviously contaminated uh, kind of water food and you know it can spread from person to person at that point. Uh, he got a really, really severe case. Um, it seems as if he had brain damage, like really extensive brain damage. He didn't die from it. Um, he is paralyzed, he no longer can walk, he no longer can talk. And so he goes from being a Confederate surgeon who you can find on the roster, right? You can find him on the muster rolls, there he is with all of his Simpson family members and typhoid fever ruins his uh, brain, right? And thus ruins the rest of his um, mobility and intelligence and ability to talk. And so they put him in the lunatic asylum because that's where you put disabled people. And he's very young, but it doesn't matter. He's physically and mentally disabled at this point. And so it's this interesting question for me with people like Joseph, like how do you tell the story of a disabled Confederate? And there's lots of them. Um, and this is something that I think there's other US Civil War people trying to work with right now. But the unfortunate truth of it is people like Joseph has a lot of material devoted to them unlike the few black people that are in the asylum um, during the war, after the US Civil War, because the Confederates lost, uh, what we see particularly in Georgia is they are forced to accept black people. Um, and when that starts happening, it is like I kind of mentioned before, it is really abysmal, the state of these uh, physically and mentally disabled um, you know, black folks who were just enslaved, right? And so seeing that level of suffering uh, really impacted me because I wanted to tell that story. But then again, when you look at people like Joseph, who you're like, wow, this is so fascinating to watch someone from the height of the white Confederate state to fall down here. We don't know where Joseph is buried. He's buried clearly at the lunatic asylum somewhere on there. Uh, um, they have a cemetery, but that cemetery has been partially taken over by a golf course. Um, and so it's, they don't have headstones for the most part. And so like somewhere is Joseph. And so then I see all these black folks who were just enslaved who where they are buried is also lost to time. They're buried seemingly at the lunatic asylum cemetery, which at Georgia, uh, somebody pulled out all of the headstone markers, which are just numbers uh, to make it easier to mow the lawn. Uh, and so we don't know where people are buried anymore. Um, and so Joseph and all of these black enslaved people who are now freed, but they're disabled and then they go to the asylum and they die they're both in the same situation of like being lost to time. Like we have these little mini records of their lives. We have more for Joseph because he's a white man and uh, we tend to preserve white guy history. Um, and so all these black folks who were enslaved and you know made out to be numbers in the uh, slave census, you know, this is the one time you see them. You know, uh, one of my most Troubling cases is a guy named William Fields. Uh, he's from he's from 1875. 
William is really, really dear to me because uh, most of the time when they kind of write about suffering, particularly black folks in uh, Georgia, lunatic and epileptic and idiot asylum, they tend to kind of run through it quick. Uh, and for some reason, I think they were really disturbed uh, seeing William. He's an elderly black person uh, and formerly enslaved, right? So they call him colored at the time. Um, he's clearly very old and he is described um, as a, um, I think a breathing corpse. And, you know, he's brought to them in a dying condition and he dies within days. And, you know, this is 10 years after the war. And so when you look at someone like William and then you look at someone like Joseph, like these are fascinating people, but how do you tell those stories? How do you compare the two? Do you compare the two? Are they in the same book? Like, what do you do? I can't find where either of them are buried. I don't know where William comes from at all. This is the only time I see him in existence in the historical record. Whereas I have so much about Joseph because his family are all these white Confederates. And so do you tell more of Joseph's story because William had the, the unfortunate experience of being an enslaved person who then kind of got, I don't know, terrorized all through reconstruction and then died at the asylum. And so when you look at it like that, this, this becomes this other issue for me, right? Where it's racialized, right? And so who do you give preference to? The guy who has a lot of material? Well, I, I wasn't trying to do that. That's why I was studying disabled people. I was trying to help them out and get their voices and stories out there, et cetera. Like we all politely and happily say, but then, well, the voice still is the loud white guy, you know? And so I was never exactly sure how to do that. Um, and obviously I wrote a dissertation and that's fine, but now it's the next step, right? And that question still lingers. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I mean, my next question was going to be, do you see disability history in the US South as being distinctive? You know, what should we be attending to when we're looking at disability in the South or in what ways does region matter? But I'm so aware of what you've been saying in the last couple um, answers that you've given about people like Joseph who are troubling binaries and making any simple distinction between victim and oppressor or wealthy and poor or freed and constrained or powerful and marginalized much more complicated, right? And it's also sort of inviting me to ask, you know, obviously still in what ways does region matter? Fine. But also, would it be a mistake to like overdraw that line between North and South and make it too sharp? This is a really important binary as well, the North and the South. But you've been troubling a lot of binaries so far, right? So in what ways is this South distinctive? Sure, but are there ways where it would be a mistake to sort of silo off the South, right? Yeah, so I, I love the question, which I always pose to my students um, when I teach the US South, what is the South? Um, can we, and so we, we make a list of all the words that people associate with it. And then, and then I'm like, okay, what are the states that are Southern guys? And so then inevitably they start fighting each other. <laughs> um, you know, they're like, Arkansas is not Southern. And you're like, okay, okay. You're like, Florida is not Southern, you know? And so then other people are like, it's really Southern, you know? And so it's fascinating doing that um, because obviously we, we know it gets fuzzy, particularly state-wise, right? So you can be like, oh, is certain parts of Virginia that way. And so like, whenever I taught at Washington and Lee up in Lexington, Virginia, people were like, DC is not Southern. And so when I taught in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, people would say it is 
in the northern part of Florida where we are, but the southern part of Florida is not southern. Um, and I was like, just to let you know, no one else makes the distinction like y'all just did outside of the state, but that's, that's good. Um, and so what was interesting for me doing all my research uh, in the 1800s in particular, trying to understand what does the US South look like is like certainly the colonies that became Southern states. Uh, that makes sense. Those are definitely Southern, right? And then there are places like Alabama and uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, and Florida that got really fluid and confusing. Um, they're still a frontier, you know, and people don't want to think about it like that, but they really are for a lot of the 1800s. You know, Florida doesn't have an asylum. Alabama doesn't have an asylum. Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, they, they don't have asylums for a very long time. And so once you start realizing, okay, those people are literally sending their disabled people back to Georgia or even to South Carolina, it's because a ton of South Carolinians go to Florida. And so once you start tracking that migration, right? So white folks bringing their enslaved black folks to Florida, once you start noticing that, certain things start to fall into place, right? The U.S. South is growing, right? And so to be like, there is a U.S. South, there is a U.S. North, that's really hard to do and say because they're not even sure what Texas is, frankly. You know, Robert E. Lee is really, really into Texans, um, but he really views them. He, he's like, they're Texans. He's really excited about them because they uh, are very happy to die for the cause. Um, but it's in part because they're just transplants from other parts of the U.S. South, right? And so like what makes a Texan a Texan is something that develops over time, right? So the guy who signs um, the U.S. Constitution for Georgia was from, I think, Rhode Island. He had only been around for like less than a decade, and then he signed for Georgia. And you're like, all this early U.S. South stuff is like, we are working on it. It is a process, right? And so certainly what you can tell is there's a massive tension between white folks who are free, obviously, and black folks who are mostly enslaved. There are some free black folks. I have free black folks uh, in my lunatic asylums. Um, I have a lot of people who um, are fascinatingly like right there on the edge of like these strange spaces that you're like, oh, I, I knew you existed, but I never thought I'd find you here, right, in these disabled spaces. Um, there's a category of um, Black person, right, it's like a literal category called Brown um, in Charleston and Savannah, so Charleston, South Carolina, and Savannah, Georgia, and they are Black people who are not slaves. They haven't been slaves for possibly like one plus more generations, maybe three or four. Um, and they often own Black people. So they've enslaved other Black people. They live in the city and they are, in, they consider themselves brown. They're brown, part of the brown society. Uh, and they are absolutely trying to differentiate themselves, right? That's why they are not saying Negro or colored, they're brown, capital B. And so finding those people in the lunatic asylums are is very interesting because you suddenly realize, no, 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 of course there's not a binary. If you're trying to not only say you're a different kind of black person by literally saying I'm a different color, like when, of course, if you were a very racist white person, like that's very difficult. I'm sure they just said, no, you're a slave, right? You're black, you're a slave person, right? 
Um, but the same thing started to happen when I occasionally would run into uh, Native American people, right? So there's Native American people at the asylum. Um, they uh, pass for white. And so if you look at just medical records, they look white. And then if you do more research, you realize, oh, you are Cherokee. Uh, and you know, that's, you have, I, I always describe this as being having to push on the record. So like pushing on the US South is very necessary, right? Like if you just wanna look at it and be like, there's a lack of education, they are poor. It's like, actually they're the wealthiest region. <laughs> um, you know, and so it's like, okay, what do we do here? Like, is there really only two categories? No, of course there's not. So some people would say there's three categories, right? So white, black, brown, and then you would add the other one, they're Native Americans, right? There's also people love to talk about this. And I ran into these people too, in the lunatic asylum, there's Jewish folks and like lots of interesting Jewish folks in our major cities here in the US South. And guess what? A lot of those people are really for the Confederacy because they view themselves as white, they view themselves as the highest class. And so some of those people enslaved black people and they, they do not feel like we're a marginalized group and we're gonna help other, other marginalized groups. Like mm -mm, it's, there's a multitude of things happening here. And so the lunatic asylum records just really demonstrated over and over and over again, this kind of like, oh, there's a lot going on. <laughs> like the South is exploring itself, it's deciding on who it wants to be. And so when I think about like, okay, what, what do these records do for the US South? It's like, they, they just kind of help show that it's a prism, right? Like there's all these different reflecting rainbow moments, right? And some of them are incredibly ugly and some of them are really beautiful and some of them are ugly and beautiful. And that's just how the US South is to me, right? It's very complicated and interesting. I kind of want to stay on this through line of troubling binaries, which you do so much of in your work and uh, pivot away from thinking about troubling regional divides between the South and the North and uh, moving towards the ways that your work troubles uh, kind of temporal divides between uh, the past and the present. We actually checked to see if the South Carolina Lunatic Asylum or the Georgia State Lunatic Idiot and Epileptic Asylum, if they were still operating in some form today, and the answer seems to be yes. Uh, so there are still mental health uh, institutions on these sites. And this got us wondering what kinds of continuities um, or ruptures do you see between uh, the history that you researched and the present day? Um, and do you feel like there are any echoes, uh, reverberations that should be attended to? Yeah. So, um, yes, uh, they are obviously not called lunatic asylums anymore. They call them hospitals, right? Um, which I think is just also a fun way to see how language shifts. Um, because hospitals would suggest there's a medical uh, rational response to this. Uh, and I, I think what's happening with asylums is exactly what the word would suggest, right? It's a sanctuary. Um, and so it, it allows you asylum. And like, I think that's a lot more pleasant than what happens now uh, with a lot of mentally ill people. Um, so being institutionalized is, uh, I think, really traumatic for a lot of mentally ill people who are obviously already struggling with something that causes them to be institutionalized unless it's forceful and not their uh, choice, right? So that they're not actually having difficulties but someone has decided they are. And so now they're being institutionalized. Um, I certainly would say that 
we should have a place for people who are struggling, right? And I think one of the unfortunate things that happened to both of these lunatic asylums, which became hospitals, is that they became um, warehouses, right, for disabled and mentally ill people. And so if you were a problem, you got put in the asylum. Um, and so, you know, the Georgia um, State Lunatic Idiot and Epileptic Asylum called, becomes Central State because it's in the center of the state. Uh, and so Central State becomes one of the largest um, places for mentally ill people in the whole world. It's incredibly overpopulated. Uh, and there's no reasonable rational care at that point for mentally ill people, right? So they, they are being abused and exploited um, by the system. It's just a problem that's gonna happen actually all throughout the United States. And it certainly happened in South Carolina and Georgia. Um, pretty much every state's gonna get their own hospital for insane people, quote, quote right? Um, but what's unfortunate about this is a lot of these Southern states have one and everybody goes there. So like, you can even see it in the old title for the Georgia um, state lunatic, right? So mentally ill people, idiot, intellectually disabled people, epilepsics, people who have epilepsy. And that continues, right? Through literally World War II, the 1960s. Um, add in, like I've explained uh, previously to y'all that there's criminally uh, insane people, right? So people who have killed people um, that the court system has said, okay, well, you're, you're insane. And so they don't go to the prison, they go to the asylum, right? And so are the hospital at this point. And so the asylum is just unnaturally full of people, the, the resources are limited, the funding is terrible. Uh, and so all these folks become increasingly abused and neglected by society who certainly don't want them, right? We go through a whole time period in the United States where eugenics was the kind of favorite idea on how to deal with disabled people. And we can see that by putting uh, folks aside in these hospitals. The thing that happens though, is when Ronald Reagan becomes the president, he decides he's going to deinstitutionalize these places, particularly here in the US South. And so in the US South, all of a sudden, these places are emptied out. Well, just to let y'all know, you can follow people for decades through the hospital, right? So the records show there are people who are there since 1910. And so all of a sudden it's 1980 something and they've been there since they were a kid. And just letting them out on the street is like an alien world. You know, even imagine the difference of a couple of decades, right? So before we entered World War II, it might have been when you showed up at the asylum as a schizophrenic person. And then now I have to leave the hospital and it's the 1980s. It's like, not only did we, by the way, have a whole world war, we've had the Korean war, we've had the Vietnam war. By the way, we landed on the moon. There's been a civil rights movement. Like we, we had all the kind of tragedy of the 1970s and now you're out on the streets. And so this is such a fascinating, uh, I, I loved the word earlier you said, Kelsey, conundrum. Because certainly, no, I don't think we should be warehousing disabled people and neglecting them uh, where they, you know, die of mysterious causes and get buried out in the back. That's a completely terrible situation. No, absolutely not. But then to have no place where mentally ill and disabled people can go for real help, not just medicalized kind of restraint and kind of neglect um, is, is a really weird binary that I think we found ourselves into, right? Being institutionalized for 72 hours because you're a threat to yourself or others 
is is not actually going to help anybody, frankly. Uh, I mean, it helps you in that moment, perhaps if you uh, are having a psychotic episode and you've, uh, you know, already attacked somebody. But what's really going to happen here is there's a lot of privatization of how then you as a disabled or mentally ill person are going to have to deal with this. And so a lot of families deal with the burden themselves, which is very costly. Uh, and so particularly when I think about um, how, quote, idiots were put in these asylums uh, in the 1800s. And so now, obviously, we have all these, like, thankfully, I have all these uh, opportunities for intellectually disabled people, like through the public, right? So we have K through 12 programs, we have, you know, college programs, um, but it becomes a lot of burden and responsibility for the people who take care of those disabled people, those intellectually disabled people. Uh, and I don't think it's always the most um, simple or easy task for parents. Uh, you know, I, I, I have been, blessed multiple times by having intellectually disabled people um, in my classroom. And it's always been really exciting for me. Like I really love teaching history to all different kinds of folks. And it was an option for me at the University of North Florida to either accept or deny that student into my classroom. And I said, why would I deny them? They're a student, they're a student at the University of North Florida. So like, come on in. And uh, I talked to their parents afterwards and they thanked me profusely for accepting them in my classroom. And I was like, uh, why, why are you like thanking me this much? And they were like, a lot of professors say, no, we don't want them in the classroom uh, because maybe they're disruptive. <laughs> and I was like, mm, um, trust me, a lot of able-bodied, able-minded students are incredibly disruptive. <laughs> uh, and I was like, no, that was, that was so fun. That was so great, you know? And it was this interesting moment to really kind of be like, oh, like we're not actually doing intellectual disability perfectly yet. Like we are also still in process, right? Um, and like, if you are really, really, really involved, you can really, really help out your kid, but that means you have to spend a lot of time, effort and money. And there's like a lot of, um, what is that, Adv being an advocate for your child. And then at some point, and this is true for a lot of people who take care of their disabled loved ones, you're worried about you dying. And so then you die and what happens to them? Who's funding this? Who's taking care of them? And that's stressful because we as a society are just like, no, 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 it's up to you. It's up to you and the family, it's up to you. But like that person has to exist for the disabled person to get their full rights as like, literally just a human, but certainly as a US citizen. And so that's a tension that bothers me a lot uh, in the world that we live in now. Like certainly what we were doing in the 1800s was an idealized dream that then fell into this kind of nightmarish decay. And I understand in part why like Reagan was like, no, 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 you can't do that. But sending people on the streets and then making it the private uh, sector or the family's responsibility, I, I think is too far. And so I'm not at all suggesting there's ever going to be a good way to balance this out, but we, we've stretched in the other direction now where society's like, it's, it's, your, it's your thing. Go on Facebook, get a, get, go into a Facebook mom group and like talk to each other and y'all figure it out. And it shouldn't be an option for me as a professor to deny access to anybody. Like that's bizarre. You, no, I don't appreciate that. But I can tell y'all 
University of North Florida, that was a program that they were like, we're one of the few programs that do this. And the University of Georgia does not do that. Washington and Lee does not do that. It's only certain places because parents have advocated to have that program start. And that's, that's troubling for me. Like that requires too much on the individual and not on society. And so it, it's interesting to see how far we've come and like inevitably because of time, we'll see something else <laughs> happen. And I'm very curious what that'll be. That's really interesting. And certainly I've heard other folks talk about all these um, community-based programs, right, that were promised to people and then the funding just never materialized, right? Um, but one of the things that I'm noticing is that a lot of the stories that you found in the archive are um, stories of people who are, quote, criminally insane. They're often involving violence, used words like struggle and suffering. But I'm also thinking of the many folks, you know, who do mad activism or mental health awareness who are really insistent that we should remember, right, that people with um, mental health disabilities are more likely to be victims of crime than perpetrators of crime. And I'm wondering how you navigate this. And if you feel that we should tell, like as historians, we have a responsibility to frame or tell stories in a certain way so as not to amplify stigma on present day communities. Like, I'm just really interested in your thoughts on this issue. I think one of the, the weird things that I have witnessed and has been a problem for me, having looked at as many records as I have, is a lot of people are like, people don't belong in asylums. They weren't mentally ill. And you're like, they definitely were mentally ill. Like the vast majority of those people were mentally ill or physically disabled, right? And so there's this kind of hope and goal of some people that like, no, they were just rebellious women. And really in the US South, the only reason you're gonna be put there is because something has gone very wrong. And you can kind of feel that, uh, particularly in the earliest records because they describe the situations in which some of these people are coming from and they're really horrifying, right? So they obviously can tell when like their loved one is quote, not right. And so a lot of people before these lunatic asylums existed just isolated them a lot. I mean, seriously, maybe like three or four people, they described this in Georgia, um, were just put in sheds. And then at some point the family was like, oh, the lunatic asylum has been established. We'll bring you to the lunatic asylum. And so when I read stories like that, and then I read, I think some people who, who like the later 19th century story of, um, it's a woman who wanted women's rights and they, they said, you're crazy and they put you in the asylum. Perhaps that's happening in the US North, perhaps that's happening other places. In the US South, the people who end up in the asylum are people who are, are really having like issues that uh, their family has decided this is too much, we can't handle it. Like you can feel in these archives, um, the family really, really being protectively involved a lot of this ends up um, too being surprising for me because I entered the records thinking, okay, well, there's gonna be a lot of people who are um, depressed, right? So there's a, a phrase uh, having melancholy. And so I was like, okay, well, there's gonna be lots of melancholy. And there's not, <laughs> not in the US South, they are not depressed. Um, they are kind of struggling in all these other ways, right? There's a lot of 
things that today we would say, oh, that's a traumatic brain injury. That's why he's epilepsies, right? So they would describe somebody who, you know, was outside um, on their horse and the, they fell off the horse and hit their head really hard on a rock. And ever since then, they've had epileptic fits. And you're like, oh, they have a traumatic brain injury. Okay. And so it's a lot of those kinds of stories, like an acute event happened, or this is a chronic um, issue that's now increasing, it's escalating typically um, in their 20s, right, um, or 30s, like they've become, like the family no longer can control them. And so they, they want them to go to the asylum. And this is kind of one of those tragic things, you can kind of tell they hope the asylum is going to fix them, right? It's going to be a quick cure. Like they'll be there briefly, then they'll come back home. Like you have the answers and then you'll come back to us. And so, you know, when I think about um, victim and oppressor uh, and these stories, right? That, you know, trying to cast mentally ill people um, as like passive people walking around existence. It's like, well, no, there's also able-bodied, able-minded people who are also incredibly violent. And so when you try to figure out like, okay, well, how are we gonna talk about these people at the asylum? They live in a violent world. So when they're too violent, they end up at the asylum. And so some of these people are definitely there because they're having these other experiences that people have decided, okay, we can't have you at home anymore. So one of the families that I think is most unsettling to me is called the Gully family. They are from Clark County, which is where the University of Georgia is. And so that's where I got my PhD. And so seeing Clark County in, over and over in the record was really interesting for me. Uh, and the entire family is intellectually disabled. Um, like the mom and dad probably have an intellectual disability of some kind. Um, what's happening though, is every time they have a kid, that kid is intellectually disabled. And so in the census and in the asylum records, they're called idiot. And so none of them are actually violent or anything like that, but they clearly are no longer able to be taken care of by their parents. Uh, the dad dies at some point. So then it ends up with the mom. She gets rid of the boys. And so she keeps the girls. Uh, and then at some point she gets rid of the girls. And so like all of these kids end up at the lunatic asylum because it also houses quote, idiots and epileptics. And so when I think about, okay, like what's the kind of uh, activist story here? Um, I understand why there's like a lot of people who want to look uh, and see, okay, well, there are narratives about mentally ill people um, being violent and that's what's dramatized. That's what's exciting. That's what ends up on podcasts and TV shows. That does happen. And there's also stories like the Gully family, which I don't know exactly what made each of these um, times where suddenly there's kids that go to the asylum. I don't know if there was an aggressive moment or there was just too many mouths to feed, but like suddenly they're not home anymore, right? And so they're in the asylum the same time you know, as formerly enslaved people who are just literally for the first time ever not being controlled by white people. So they're just abandoned and out in the street in 1865. And so it's suddenly in the middle of winter and you're an elderly black person, elderly black woman. And so what's, what's gonna happen to you? And maybe this is just dementia or Alzheimer's, who even knows, but they put you in the asylum. You're at the asylum the same time as intellectually disabled people, same time as traumatic brain injury people. They're all in the same place, right? 
And so I, I really, I get uh, bothered when people try to say, oh, you know, you're making people out to be um, kind of like the worst uh, thing where it's like, I don't, I don't, there's not a best version of this. Um, victim doesn't mean the best, right? There's certainly people who, when I look at their records, you can tell they are really, really um, abused, right? So these people who were put in sheds, um, you know, there's one woman who uh, is um, beaten really ruthlessly by, I think, her uncle. And I, I question what her mental illness is, right? Or if she's just an abuse victim. It's very difficult to tell. You know, I question sometimes when I read, uh, particularly about formerly enslaved people in 1865, 1866, you know, when it's kind of like, are you here because everyone else is just neglecting you and you're actually just like a physically sick person? And they've decided like your physical sickness is like a mental illness and it's like a disability. And so we're gonna put you here. And so that's where there's like this interesting tension between um, is this a place of sanctuary and cure or are we seeing the beginnings of like warehousing, right? Where it's like, this is a catch all. Like this is where all of the, the bad parts of our society go. Um, and so, you know, to try and binary it out is confusing to me because it's like, oh, well, no, some people are victims in some moments and then some people are not in like five seconds later and then they're victims again. And so trying to look for easy, simplified explanations of what's going on, I think is where we get into trouble, particularly with disabled people. I'm not trying to find inspiration porn <laughs> in the records. I'm also not trying to find demons in the records. They're just who they are echoing through time and I'm looking at them and trying to understand fully what's going on with them, which is difficult because these are just medical records. Yeah, the fact that you're only getting that one sliver and it's told from a particular perspective is probably also <laughs> a major challenge. Um, I think this is a related question, right? Is that you have done, as you've already um, mentioned, a lot of work wandering around cemeteries, right? Thinking about cemeteries. And you have a number of photos on your website that honor places where marginalized people were interred. And I think Kelsey and I would both just like to really hear you say more about that, why you, you know, began this project, what its meanings are for you, where you are with this now, any of that. So I love cemeteries. I love them. I love them. I love them. Um, I think one of the most fascinating things in existence is that we all share one thing in common, which is we're all going to die. Uh, and so like, congrats. Like the three of us are definitely gonna die. And I have no idea when, I hope we live forever, but like I teach students all the time. I'm like, y'all are all gonna die. All of the professors I've ever had, they're going to die. Some of them have already died. And you're like, okay, so what's gonna end up to my human form, my fleshy vessel thing? And that's the most interesting question of all because I'm dead, so y'all are gonna deal with it. And so then <laughs> we have to question, okay, do the people in your life who are around your corpse deal with it in a way that I can see through time and space? And how limited is it by the time and space that we're in, right? So COVID-19 was so fascinating early on. Um, so like there are certain rituals that have to happen in a lot of uh, religions. So like in Islam, right? Like there are certain things like it has to happen very quickly. Like you need to do it now. And so like Iran, uh, very famously, there were like aerial shots that we had. And so we could tell like, oh, okay, y'all are, there's huge cemeteries suddenly, right? Because 
like you have to bury these people fast, right? And so the same thing was happening when the Delta variant hit India. Um, Hindus uh, uh, burn their dead. They don't bury them and they don't uh, bury them quickly. They burn them quickly. And so that happened to happen quick, right? And so that's fascinating watching, again, Iran, India, two different religions, COVID-19 responding totally differently. Funeral homes here in the United States were struggling, Judeo-Christian, right, style, um, particularly Christian, particularly like if you think about like um, our hospitals, right, we have morgues inside of our hospitals. Those morgues then transport the body to a funeral home and that funeral home then buries the body, right? And so that process became problematic because there were so many, and there's still in actually a lot of states like Texas, for example, um, the morgue only has so many people, dead people in the, the morgue. And so then they had freezer trucks. And so New York City had these, Texas has them right now. And so that's where you just put dead COVID-19 people in these trucks to then await to go to the funeral home to bury them. And so that's just us in our pandemic right now. And so like, like how there was all these different responses to it, right? And so when I, as a young person, uh, was wandering through existence, one of the things that happened was very near my house was a cemetery, and I thought it was very pretty, um, because a lot of U.S. Southern cemeteries in rural areas are very pretty, uh, except for I noticed that's very strange. A part of the cemetery seems really overgrown, and so I was like, why is that part overgrown? What's the deal? And I was like, parents, do you have an answer? I'm a middle schooler. And they were like, it's segregation. And I was like, what now? And they were like, that's where the black folks are buried. And so it was like, well, I don't understand. Why is this area literally to this day being mowed and that area has been allowed to be overgrown? And I'm talking about like massive trees overgrown. And I was like, I don't understand the dichotomy because again, I was 12 and they were like, injustice. And I was like, you can see it in spaces of the dead, you can see injustice, like, like buried alongside people. And the answer is, of course, yes, right? Uh, which we all kind of intrinsically know, right? So like, if you're a military veteran, you can be buried at Arlington, right? Uh, if you're a military veteran, you can ask the US government for a headstone, which is to the benefit of many people, because otherwise, because of poverty, uh, you might not have a headstone. And so that's why we do that. And so you're like, that's great because, you know, you gave the United States government a part of your life in terms of military servants, they owe you a headstone. All right. But then you think about all these impoverished people that have existed, I don't know, all throughout American history, and they have wooden headstones, right? They're not stones at all. They're just little markers made out of wood, typically even just one little stick, right? That rocks, it disappears, it gets moved, et cetera. And then now your grave isn't marked at all. And so one of the things that I noticed, which I was fascinated by in this cemetery next to my house, was Black folks couldn't afford in the 1800s and the early 1900s uh, headstones. And so they were doing a couple different things. One of those things was having a uh, really shiny white quartz, which is a kind of rock, and they were putting that in place. And so that would mark the spot that someone was buried. I can tell that now in part because uh, our soil is bad. And so that sinks in. So you can see like a six foot space where you're like, oh, that's where probably just even a body was, but perhaps a, like a pine um, coffin. And so it's just all rotted away, right? And so there's a quartz six feet of like indent, right? But I mean, like you can also see things like uh, funeral home markers. So they're metal. They have glass on the front um, with literally a piece of paper. So just like a piece of paper with a handwritten name on it. 
but obviously glass breaks and all of a sudden that rots away too. And so it's just a metal marker. Um, later on, people were pouring concrete into like, you know, you put down uh, kind of two really long pieces of wood, two short pieces of wood, it makes a rectangle and you pour concrete in. And then you have on top of where the body is, um, basically a very large headstone. And you could see people handwriting with sticks, the names of people, right? Um, because that's the only way they can do it because of the wealth and quality that's clearly lingering from slavery, right? And so I loved all this because I was like, this is such a way to understand like US South, like America, like you can see all of American history in the disparity of 10 feet. Like you go right 10 feet and we have these massive, beautiful uh, graves of Confederate soldiers. And then over here, 10 feet over is really well tended to by the local black people, but you know, there's massive trees that have grown up and, you know, there's all these um, kind of fake flowers and everything because they're permanent, they last their time. But, you know, it's on concrete with handwritten stick and it just says Henry, right? And it, that's so interesting to like being able just to physically look down and like witness all of American history in one go. Inevitably, every cemetery you go to has stories like that. Right. And so like one of the most famous uh, cemeteries in Athens, Georgia, where the University of Georgia is, um, has an entire section that just looks like nothing. But like it is something. It's where the paupers are buried, but it's actually where the black folks get buried. Um, so like where the poor people get buried, which is mostly is black folks. Um, and it's where the river floods. So the river just floods through this area. And so like if any rocks or wooden markers ever existed there, they're gone. Right. Literally, you can stand there and look up to the right, and that's where the top Confederate officers of like the entire thing were are buried. And these are massive obelisks, right? They're like 20 feet tall. And what's on top of the most amazing thing about that is they will be next to other kind of wealthy white people from the same time period who, you know, lots of women had struggled with infant mortality in the 1800s. And so you will see them have infant gravestones. They're small, they're always small, right? Because the baby's small, the thing is small. Sometimes they just said the word infant. Sometimes they'll say like the first name and they'll say son of blah, blah, blah. Um, and what's fascinating, and I, I literally have brought students to kind of witness this, right? Is like, so here on our left, there's what looks like an empty nothingness, but actually is all of the black people in this county who built this county. So some of these people are former slaves. All these people worked and made the city what it is today. And over here on our right, we can see not only these massive obelisks of some of the wealthiest people whose names are on the buildings of the university, they're the street names of the town, their babies got little headstones. We know about their babies who were a day old, born stillborn, and we don't know a thing about these people because they had temporary headstones, um, literally just rocks or wood that has rotten away, it's gone. And it's like, this is, this is it. <laughs> like, this is the rest of American history. Like, we will have to deal with this forever and ever and ever. Like, this is how it started. And we will have to deal with this now. We'll have to deal with this for the rest of the United States. And so I love cemeteries because they are just encap encapsulating everything that you can look at a history textbook and find dry and boring and blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, 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 go and look at it 
and you can see how actually the whole thing is, right? And in depth, right? I absolutely loved what you said, and this is a paraphrase, but it was so brilliant about how you can see all of American history in the spatial arrangement and material upkeep, like lawn mowing of US cemeteries. And what you were really getting at is looking at the cemetery as a primary source. And you were sort of alluding to using the cemetery as a primary source, as a teaching tool. I have not taught uh, high school students. So I haven't gone through that process of trying to think really creatively about archives pedagogically um, for a younger audience. Um, But I love the idea of thinking about the cemetery as a primary source and offering that to students um, as a way of like understanding history or the collapse between the present and the past as being always already at like at their fingertips or in their neighborhood. Um, So I just thought that was such an innovative, innovative way to think about the lived and built environment as an archive. Well, I know that we'll circle back around to pedagogy and teaching, um, but I really wanted to kind of turn towards some of your many other hats that you've worn as a historian. There have just been several, and there's so many different directions that we could go in, uh, and we'd love to hear more about uh, your Digital Humanities Research Fellowship. Um, at the Center for Virtual History. So we're always interested in hearing more about the digital humanities, more public-facing history, especially as it pertains to disability history and helping academic work reach broader audiences. So I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about what you did during your fellowship um, for the Digital Humanities Research Fellowship or point us toward any particular projects in the digital humanities that folks might be interested in. Yeah, so my um, fellowship year came, uh, I graduated with my PhD. I had a year where I was a visiting assistant professor at Washington and Lee in Virginia. And then I had a fellowship with Deaf History, so D-E-A-P-H, not (laughs) D-E-F, history here uh, at the University of Georgia again. And what was really interesting for me is I, again, if you can't tell, really like massive databases. I like looking at lots and lots of lots of stories to see little individual stories. And so I had already done that with my uh, dissertation with these lunatic asylums. And so the project that I worked on um, was at the time called Count the Dead. And uh, what it was, was looking at death certificates um, from 1919 to 1927 in Georgia, the state of Georgia, and uh, trying to look at the disparities between the deaths of life and lives really of uh, black and white folks in that time period. And so for, I guess a year, (laughs) I transcribed death certificates I had already obviously run into medical reports before, but these were like physical medical reports, right? So cause of death was very scientific and also from the 1920s. And so we use some of those terms still, but for the most part, we don't. Uh, And what was fascinating was seeing all these people's lives through their deaths, which is what I had already been encountering over and over again with my own research, right? And so I think one of the most intriguing moments for me in these death certificates was to see um, 
events so specific to the time period, but that once you read it, you understood like so much about the reality around this person. Um, that's now dead, right? But like, I'm looking at the moment they died. And so, you know, one of the um, gentlemen who died was a black man who was kind of older, but he was a bellhop. So uh, a guy who works at a hotel um, and he was crushed to death in the elevator when it collapsed, right? So the elevator like broke and he in the elevator died. Um, and so that in itself was so fascinating, right? So, you know, thinking about, right, in the 1920s, like elderly black men were bellhops at hotels and like accidents would happen such as this where then they died. And that's, that's just the end of that person's story. Like they died serving white people uh, in a luxury environment, you know? And so like familiar, but unfamiliar, lots of World War I veterans, right? So people dying of other related things. And then, you know, you would look up and find their gravestone and it would be the U.S. federal uh, one that's gifted to you as a military veteran. Um, one of those was a young Black man. And that was perhaps one of the highlights of my life. Uh, I trespass a lot, a lot, if you can't tell, to go to cemeteries. Um, so yeah, I'm a criminal, I guess. Um, uh, but a lot of cemeteries are on private land, right? And I'm like, well, I'm gonna go find the cemetery. And so I had seen this young black man die. And I was like, you know, I found online that he has the federal uh, gravestone, but I can't tell like what's happening with the cemetery. Like it's like the pictures are weird. Like it's just his headstone. And I was like, I want to know where the cemetery is. And so we go out into the middle of nowhere. I realize, oh, we're on an old plantation, but he's a World War One veteran. So he died in the 1920s, right? And he's young. He's, he's in his 20s when he dies. And so I was like, this is a plantation, a reformer plantation. Uh, and so angry white guys on a, um, a, what is those, like a mobile lawnmower as he's going by and we're driving by him like uh, awkwardly trying to find this gravestone and then all of a sudden there it is in the woods by itself and so I hop out of the car and I realize this actually is a slave cemetery and he as a World War One veteran in the 1920s is buried at a slave cemetery on a plantation so everybody around him these like little indents right those are all graves. He is the only stone, gravestone. And so I was like, oh, this is fascinating. So this is the, this is why they have not been able to tear down this part of the woods because he alone is making this clear that this is a cemetery, which unfortunately, lots of white people, you know, when they know there's a slave cemetery, they don't really care. And they'll, they'll kind of remove everything from the area and do whatever they can to utilize the property, right? Uh, and so he's saving, he's saving his entire family in death, right? Like you can't touch this area. It's clearly now a cemetery. And so his early death in his 1920s, after he served in World War I, has like preserved this slave cemetery, has preserved his people's resting place. And I was like, this is, a, this is fascinating because I'm very white. <laughs> now this white guy is staring daggers at me across uh, what was clearly former cotton fields. And so I'd like hop in the car and we like drove off and there was dust everywhere. And it was just fascinating because I was like, you are so angry that this person exists, right? Like you're just so mad. 
And I love it because he's only showing up in a couple places, right? So he's here in this gravestone. He's here in this death certificate. He's here a couple places in the census. He's here in the World War I uh, draft card registration. And like, that's all we got. <laughs> like there's not other primary sources that were ever saved. They were never preserved, right? Because we, again, kind of privilege white people's history. And so this black people history has probably stayed within the family and it just doesn't exist in public spaces. And so it was a great project for me because I was just kind of replicating stuff that I was doing previously with my PhD and with my own research, which is like, yes, it's this massive digital humanities database, but then there's that extra exciting part where you go out into the world and experience it. And so like, that would be one of the things that I would say is really key to digital humanities projects that people really kind of get obsessed with. They're like, oh, we can do it all on the computer and I don't have to kind of touch the real world. And it's like, absolutely you do. Like you have to go that next step, go out the door, look around, see what's up. And so, you know, one of the main projects that I always like, I, my students always like is called CSI Dixie. Uh, it's very similarly a massive um, project, uh, database project where, um, uh, his name is Stephen Barry. He runs the Center for Virtual History. Uh, he did um, civil, sorry, well, kind of civil war era, but South Carolina coroner's reports. And he has kind of had a couple major stories about them, but he does lots of kind of digitization of them and transcribing them. And it's really helpful for students to get like a deeper understanding of what's going on in the South, which is, you know, clearly there's a lack of social services. There's a lot of um, kind of darkness and accidents um, and uh, questionable uh, decisions. So a coroner report is basically like what happened here. And so there's lots of people that are like, the slave just happened to die. And, you know, like clearly by the description and the report, like you, it's a murder, this is a murder. And they're like, he just, he died, it was an accident. And so that's a helpful digital humanities report because it exposes some of the um, you know, truth of the U.S. South, right? And so like for me, when I have used that project, I often show my students, like these are the locations, right? Like let's look at them. Um, because otherwise, again, so much of this can become dissociated, detached, isolated, nothing, right? They're not science fiction. This isn't fiction. And so like you have to kind of put people in these actual moments and these actual locations. Uh, and so I love digital humanities, but I, I also think we, it, it becomes almost like a video game, <laughs> you know, um, which is great because we all were stuck inside in a pandemic and we got to view the world like that. But like, we, we can also still <laughs> like explore the actual human world in combination, right? With digital humanities. I mean, along this vein of technology and using virtual spaces to learn more about history, you are fairly active on social media, and I know you've thought about the role that social media can play in our work on disability history. But throughout our conversation, we've also talking, been talking about the danger of using history and other people's lives and stories to draw attention to yourself or feed your ego. And I would be really curious to just hear your thoughts on what's currently happening in the disability history space on social media, or if you have advice for scholars on how to navigate social media as a tool for learning and sharing material, anything in that vein would be really interesting to hear. Yeah, so I study dead people. Um, and early in the pandemic last summer, I one day, uh, I think fairly carelessly tweeted something that I was like, this is how I feel about the pandemic. 
And then I walked away from my computer and I kind of looked a couple hours later and I was like, whoa, a lot of people have retweeted that. And I was like, huh, okay. And then I was like, this is not becoming viral, is this? And it was. <laughs> um, it was retweeted, I don't know how many times. I think the last time I looked, it was liked by like 120,000 people or something. Um, at the time I had had like maybe 3,000 followers right now. I think I have like 11,000. They're all because of that tweet. Um, and that was surprising for me. Uh, I obviously had been kind of slowly networking over time, over many years. Um, you know, and like we all do kind of play around with social media, like, hey, this is what I do, but also like, I ate this today. <laughs> um, and so it was, it was surprising for me because I had just left academia. And so that's a partially why I was like, I'm upset about the pandemic. I'm going to say as a death historian, I find all this grotesque that we are stumbling through this mass death event. Like, I can't believe we are pushing aside people, like, you know, marginalized people for instant gratification. I can't believe we're doing this. Like, this is just utterly grotesque. And Patton Oswald retweeted it. You know, just like super famous people were like, yeah, this is true. And I was like, I, I said this while I was sitting on my couch, like, you know. And so I think that's one of the more confusing things about social media. Like I had said other profound things <laughs> before that, um, but you never really know what's going to go viral, both positively and negatively. So when that happened, I was put all over the internet. Uh, I had uh, people saying, oh, you're on Reddit. So if you don't know what Reddit is, it is a website that conglomerates information from all kinds of places. It also has really dark sides to it. Uh, and so in the comments, people were questioning if I really was a historian. Uh, one, of, one of the comments was, uh, she probably is just a Starbucks barista, which I thought was very, very uh, mean towards Starbucks baristas. I was like, they are infinitely better than me. <laughs> like, please no, <laughs> like, like I am nothing compared to the hardworking souls who make coffee. Um, but it was fascinating because I literally had people going on my website and being like, she is a real historian, here's her CV. And I was like, what just happened? Like, where are we in reality? That like, you're on my website being like, see, she got published in this journal. She's real on Reddit. Like, and people are debating my credentials. I was like, what is happening? Like, okay. And so social media to me is a lot of yelling at nothing. And then having like this shiny punctuating kind of moments where you're like, and then everybody is staring at you. Um, and you're like, oh, uh, so where I was on Twitter was the expectation, I'm gonna do academic networking. And it's not just for academia. Everybody is looking at you from Patton Oswalt to people on 4chan. It is an opportunity certainly to get your voice out there, to find other people like you, to learn from those people. So I love disability Twitter because I follow tons of disabled people. I follow tons of disability scholars and they are doing such interesting, fascinating things, right? But if you follow them long enough, they get attacked by people all the time and people are incredibly cruel to them. And that's not always worth it, um, regardless if you're disabled or not. 
But particularly if you're disabled in the kind of world that we live in today, that can be really tough. Like you're dealing with a lot of other things. And I have certainly seen people have to like almost prove that they're disabled, which is the absolute worst. And if you're a historian, particularly for disability history, it's like maybe there's better places for you, right? Like doing your real research, trying to get like these stories out there, right? Helping your students, like that's that's a lot of the important stuff. And social media can feel like something's happening. It can feel rewarding, but it's not. It's an addiction, right? Like I get frustrated when I'm like, I thought that was a great tweet. Why was there only three likes to it? And you're like, well, because of the algorithm messed up. <laughs> like, and I tweeted at 1 a.m. No one's awake. Like, it's my fault. <laughs> like, and so, or I could have been creating a really interesting lesson plan that discussed some disability issues. And those are two different choices I made. One was I want the immediate gratification of like a thousand likes instead of the hard, weird work of like trying to piece together something and maybe it fails in the classroom and I'm like, but, but yeah. And so those two things are totally at odds. And like that sucks because I really, really like disability Twitter and I'll never meet some of those people in person. Um, and so I stay on Twitter and other social media because I like hearing those people's stories. I like learning. But like, I doubt highly that a lot of us will ever say anything as remotely profound as like those occasional things that go really viral. Um, we will just spend a lot of time, you know, yelling into the void. And a part of that is, I think there's a lot of academics who are lonely and insecure and want validation like right now. And that's kind of one of the problems about academia that we don't feel fulfilled in our physical lives, right? Like the people that are around us in graduate school or at um, our schools, like they're just not fulfilling, it's not satisfying. And so we go elsewhere. And that totally makes sense, particularly for disability history, right? Like everywhere I went, I would have been the only disability historian. And so like trying to find my group at one of these schools was never gonna happen. But at the same time, should I spend all my time in a virtual world? Probably not. There's probably other people who I could talk to about disability history in person who could become little disability historians. And that seems pretty worthwhile to me. Well, I mean, on that vein of talking about disability history to people in the real world, you are, of course, now working as a high school social studies teacher in Houston, Texas. Do you find that your training and your work in disability history shapes what you do in the classroom? Yeah, so I am always um, telling, I guess, stories um, to my students. I've had a lot of my students who I think are precious. Um, I thought my college students were precious too. I taught people who were in their 70s and 80s. So I just find all my students precious regardless of age. But I certainly think high school students are precious because they are in development in a different way. Uh, and they ask the most fascinating questions. So I'll have like something up on the screen about uh, like Christopher Columbus and his conquest of the Native Americans. And someone will raise their hand and you're like, yes, what's the question? And I'm thinking this is gonna be like about these big issues we're dealing with. And they're like, what does conquest mean? And you're like, all right, I'm gonna define that for you. And I'm gonna realize you are 15 and you were still learning vocabulary. And so like, you know, simple words that like on, like in the history textbook that we have, it said the word lumber and it didn't define the word lumber. And uh, the student was like, what does lumber mean? And I was like, that's a great point. 
um, it means wood, <laughs> right? And they were like, why didn't they say wood? And I was like, um, lumber becomes like, like wood becomes special. Like when you try to sell it, I was like, this is so fascinating. Like, um, and so one of the things that I have realized teaching high school, which is I think unique, but it's like super fun is like, they're working on it. Like they are actively trying to be like, what is America? Who am I? What are you? You know, and I'm like, oh, this, you know, and like, that's very helpful. I'm a very flexible, humorous person. And so like, I just kind of roll with the punches. Uh, and I mean, like, that's, you need to do that. Um, because as it turns out, history is being made all the time. And so when I entered into uh, teaching social studies high school, uh, it was in the pandemic before we had the vaccine. My school immediately was like, yeah, you're going, you're going back, <laughs> you're going back, it's happening. Uh, and I was like, oh, cool, 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 cool. Uh, and so I was just like in the classroom with a mask and there wasn't a vaccine. Uh, and so students could choose to be hybrid and people with medical conditions could be online too, like so teachers. And I chose uh, to be in person. And so I was like, well, they're in person, a lot of them. And so I'll be in person. Uh, and so I was like, let's go for it. Let's see what's up. Uh, and so disability is such a great place because it's, it's, a, it's a good way to be already thinking differently, right? And to really look at every situation and like, like I said, like really push on it. Be like, what really is happening here? Like, don't just assume like the biggest, easiest narrative, right? And so every time I've run into disability, which is constantly, you know, you, you see these moments where you're like, oh, this is so much more interesting. This is so more complicated, right? And so I, I love being able to kind of be with young people who are working through like, what's existence? What's America? Who am I? Because then you can just be like, this is it. Like, this is real. Like, disability has always existed. Like, LGBTQ issues have always existed. Like, race is real. Like, we got we to gotta deal with race and history. Uh, Texas and a lot of other states are really um, working on uh, fighting against quote critical race theory which is just basically being critical about race and history and it's been fascinating to watch my students be like yeah let's talk about that like they are not afraid it's other people particularly older people who are afraid of dealing with those issues they want to talk about the most controversial things and that includes disability and so because i've always been kind of fearless and uh, confident about like okay disability people they exist they're around like it's just made it really fun and easy uh, in the high school classroom to, to be like, okay, this is real, let's go for it. Like, what's, what's happening? And so being a disability historian has been really fun because obviously it doesn't matter if I'm in academia or not, like I just am one. And so it's fun being a high school teacher because they are very interested in mental health and they want to know about these kinds of things. And if they've always existed, has, I mean, literally one of the first days of this year, someone asked me, has PTSD always existed? And so then I got to contextualize PTSD and that was very fun, you know? And so there's just always these issues, you know, where they're interested. I'm literally sure there are some admin teachers, parents, not just at my school, but at all schools that are like, no, 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 don't talk about disability. Don't talk about mental illness. And you're like, Oh, but they're asking about it. And I'm gonna answer because I'm a teacher. <laughs> and so that's what I do. And so I, I appreciate all my experience with disability in academia because it's kind of taught me, you just gotta do it. You just have to answer truthfully, right? I was thinking a lot about my experience as a high school student 
learning history, like uh, taking U.S. history classes. And I was sort of retroactively imagining what it would have been like to learn American history from a disability historian or to have any sort of exposure to disability history or disability as a unit of historical analysis or an aspect of lived human experience that we should pay attention to. And uh, I mean, I know that I would be much better for it and I would have been a completely different high schooler if I had had exposure to disability history at a younger age. I'm wondering if you have any advice for other teachers, maybe who don't have the training that you have in disability history, um, whether they're teaching at the junior high level, high school, college, uh, maybe even uh, primary school uh, regarding integrating disability history into their classroom. So I think one of the first steps that I take, probably because I am a nerdy scholar person, uh, is reading. Uh, anytime I'm going to teach something new, I just buy a bunch of books on that topic. Um, I don't always read them thoroughly, but I do at least skim them and like physically in my hands. Uh, or if you can buy an ebook, that's fine too. Um, but I like seeing peer reviewed books on the topic, right? So like when I was teaching world religions, I was like, oh, I don't know all the ins and outs of all the major world religions. So I'll just buy a bunch of books on them. And so I've now read a bunch of things that I was like, this is helpful. Thank you. And so for people who want to integrate disability, I know it probably is horrible to suggest this, but you probably are going to have to buy a book. And you're probably going to have to at least skim the book. Uh, I think one of the easiest things though, is that there is a book called The Disability History of the United States. And oh, wow, that is a helpful book. That is so helpful for K through 12 and for college teachers. Um, she lays it out really, really simple and easy. She goes through literally the chronological time period of the United States. It covers a huge range of things. Uh, as a person who, you know, like specializes in a couple of those spaces, it was really cool um, to see the author really, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I talked about that in my dissertation. That's, that's my stuff. Like, look at you, you're saying it really quickly and like confidently and intelligently. That was great. And so, you know, I literally have bought, you know, that book. I've bought, you know, the queer history of the United States. It's like, I've bought Asian American history, like Hispanic American history, like Arabic American history. Like you, you just have to cover the whole thing, right? Like if you're going to include people, you, you really have to be like, okay, I am here now. Otherwise, and this is where I, I would absolutely say, please do not include disability like this, which is in a token kind of way. Uh, I think at some point we realized, oh my gosh, we now, we're not talking about women. And so then we were like, we'll have them in a separate little section over here on the right side of the textbook page. And we'll be like, it's, it's Dolly Madison. And you're like, all right. <laughs> so there were like other women around and stuff. And they're like, they were wives. And it's like, we can't, we can't do that. <laughs> and, um, like inevitably, because I think we like disabled soldiers because there's patriotism and a lot of material around them because typically for the longest time they were white. It's like they, they show up, right? Um, and they also become like a little not disabled in a lot of ways, right? Like they just become like super American. Like they're almost better now that they're disabled, right? They're, they're like special now in that kind of extra American way. And like, that's troubling. Like, don't do that <laughs> to disabled soldiers. Like they of course have always existed, but then you should really like see what that looks like. What does that look like from 
all points of view, right? So in the United States, uh, like what does that look like on the kind of early colonial period all the way to now? And I mean, that's helpful for kids to chart changing disability, changing medicine, right? Changing masculinity, then eventually we have uh, women who are injured in combat and they become disabled. It's like, that's fascinating. Like that's a great arc to learn. But like, if you just sit there in World War One and you're like, look at these grotesque images where, you know, they had their face disfigured and like, wow, this is their rehab where they had this mask put on their face. And then you never talk about disabled soldiers again. Like you are on purpose trying to like create an idea and image around the horror of World War One, which by the way, all war is hell. So like you either go for it or you don't, okay? And I feel the same way when we talk about intellectual disability. You could you could do a little name drop here and there, but you're also missing out on intellectual disabled people have existed all throughout the United States, uh, throughout its history. And so like, okay, we'll cover, care, cover the art, right? Um, so like we do that with eugenics, right? So we all of a sudden are like, ooh, look, eugenics, shiny, 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 horrible, horrible, horrible. Okay, well, eugenics is still one of those questions that people have in the disability community with even moments like this with COVID-19 and the pandemic we're having, right? Like are immunocompromised people even under consideration as we walk around the world kind of spreading Delta amongst each other? It's like, well, no, they're not. And you can look online. There's plenty of people who are just saying, it's your fault if you die, <laughs> immunocompromised person. Like we're just gonna live our lives. And it's like, that's eugenics. <laughs> like that's eugenics. You. So if we're gonna have this in existence, then pull it back through time. Let's see how often that's happened, right? That like society has said, some of you get to live, some of you don't get to live. And so that's, that's necessary. That's actually how history works. It's change over time. It's not these like little isolated moments that are for grotesque reasons or for the opposite, which I think happens particularly with able-bodied and able-minded people where they, it's I, the word I've said a few times, it's inspiration porn right? Like where they're like, oh, this is fantastic. He overcame his disability. And you're like, there's nothing to overcome. He's just living with his disability. This is just his life. Um, Y'all are doing this extra like thing where it's an achievement to exist when it's just existence. Uh, and I think we do that a lot in our kind of mainstream history um, with disability, where it turns out like we don't know how to talk about it. It's not considered normal to include, it's abnormal actually, uh, or atypical. And it's like, nope, this is really just like how we should be talking about women all the time and black folks all the time and LGBTQ people all the time. It's just, this is just actually history. Like they've existed throughout United States history and without throughout world history, right? And kids wanna know, like they're not like, oh, well, I'm just accepting of the mainstream argument. Like they want to know all these interesting things that have not been a part of the story they've been told since elementary school. Like they want the next step. They want the more complicated narrative, right? And that, that can go in all kinds of ways, right? So being disabled doesn't have to be positive or negative. It just is, it's just an experience and it's, it's existence, right? And so I, I think, that can be tough for a lot of teachers because they want to put uh, a kind of a value on it, like an argument on it, when it's like, this is just people's stories. They just exist through time, right? And so, you know, it might take some more work, but actually your students are gonna be better for it. Your classroom's gonna be more interesting.
Thanks so much for that answer, Leah, and that reflection to just go out, do the reading, do the work, appreciate the complexity, and don't fall into simple narratives of inspiration porn or something like that. So I think that's a, a point well made and certainly well taken. Was there anything else that you wanted to share as we're wrapping up the conversation? Anything you feel is left unsaid or anything like that? I would be curious, and this is just kind of a a statement for the future of disability history. If we will ever get into the same places that particularly right now I am seeing with African-American or black history, which is that has become cutting edge and exciting for a lot of universities. Obviously we're in a kind of black lives matter. And so all of a sudden there's this realization that black history is really important. It was important before, <laughs> We just neglected that. And so I am very curious if we are going to ever move to a time period where disability history will be like that. I know a lot of my friends in disability history, um, and I mean across the world, have a really tough time getting jobs as a disability historian. They typically are hired because of something else happening, right? So like I study India. Okay, well, you study Asia. <laughs> so like you're the Asian historian, which you're like, well, actually just India and actually just disabled people in India. And they're like, you're going to teach Asian history. And so the same thing happens to people, um, you know, who uh, are, I'm going to study deaf culture uh, in World War One, and typically, you know, how people no longer can hear after World War One, And they're like, you're going to teach science and technology. And you're like, kind of, <laughs> kind of, I do that. And so I'm very curious if we'll ever get to the place where I think fortunately now black historians have like literally people who study black history um, have gotten right where it's like you're being seen for you and being appreciated for you probably also exploited and weirdly taken advantage of and also probably going to be neglected by a good number of these institutions who can't take care of you, but they want you right. I don't know if we'll ever get to that place. And that is interesting for me um, because I think disability history is really, really significant. I think that you were right to point towards larger historical circumstances, uh, like social, political, historical circumstances um, that I think progressively over time and these flashpoints mm -hmm. uh, and cultural and political history that have moved the dial and created more sympathy as we're seeing the humanities being massively de defunded in academia. Um, these exceptions, these holdouts yeah. that are influenced by um, a social or political climate that's larger than a purely academic ecosystem. But I do think that part of the rise, like the ascendance of Black studies or Black history is having a more clearly defined space in the academy, seeing like more positions on the job market, or even I'm thinking like I live in New York and I remember seeing a job listing in 2020, fall 2020, at a private school in Manhattan for scholars and residents at the PhD level who were doing Black history and Black studies so that they could bring that into an elite high school setting. 
Um, and I do think that there was a reactionary quality to that. It looks very good to further institutionalize black studies. And I mean, I do black studies and disability history. So on the one hand, I, I've gotten really excited to see more expansive institutional space for black history, but it kind of the question that you're asking does make me wonder like what sort of social or political event might precipitate because I do think that's a big part of it like <laughs> larger circumstances that are sort of making it suddenly important for the university to invest kind of situationally in the humanities in a way that makes them look good what scares me is it seems like those major flashpoints like those social historical moments that do move the dial tend to be moments of extreme violence. I don't, I don't really know what to make of that. And I don't have, I mean, I don't have a good answer for you, but I guess my, my lingering question is, what would it take in the world around us to make disability history ableism uh, an issue that universities um, decide to invest money in? Yeah, it's kind of an upsetting line to go down because as you suggested, Kelsey, like what, what scale of tragedy would it take, right, for that to um, shake up the foundations of a conservative institution like a university, right, and, and get them to fund that. We could also ask the question, like, is a tenure track job or are, is a growing number of tenure track jobs the right metric for success? Is that what we want success to look like for the field of disability history? Sure, like pragmatically for all the PhDs that are graduating, that would obviously be lovely. <laughs> they could all fall into the, the soft embrace of a tenure track job. But I, I, think, I think we'd be making a mistake if we stopped there and said that's what success looks like. Because I don't think that's the project that we're really after here. Yeah, and I obviously would say as a person who's left academia, um, no, <laughs> that's not where success lies, right? Uh, a, a lot of academics are, overworked, underpaid, work 24-7, 365, which if you're disabled is not really great uh, on your mind or your body, but also if you're able, um, that's not really great either. And so I, I am interested uh, to see what will happen to disability history. I am genuinely, genuinely interested. It's very difficult to have a regular uh, walk around job and do the same kind of research and teaching with disability history as it is if that's your whole job. And so I think there's some bliss and benefit to having academia, having spaces in academia for disability history. Um, of course, <laughs> I said this to a university president and he was saying, oh, I love your work on disabled people. And I said, oh, thank you so much. And then I said to him, I will continue to do this even if I work at Starbucks or Walmart. So I would appreciate if you got me a job, but just to let you know, I'm gonna do this regardless of where I am or what I'm doing. And he looked back at me and said, oh, no one's ever said anything like that before. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to do the important work that I have to do in this world. And that's the work of these disabled folks. And if you wanna pay me to do that, that would be great, but I'm still just gonna do it, all right? And he really was super surprised. 
but it's like, sorry, like disability history is just going to have to happen, regardless if academia has a space for it. Like, we're going to have to keep talking about it. We're going to have to publish regardless of, you know, some of these major university presses want it or not. Like, we're just going to have to, you know, multitask, right? And so that's going to really suck, I think, for a lot of disability historians, because no, there aren't going to be the cushy, sweet jobs that were promised. Uh, instead, there's going to be other kinds of things, which are going to be really great. Um, but then you're also going to have to keep really thinking about your work. Otherwise, it's just going to fade away. And that makes sense to some extent, because you have a new life now. But no, but seriously, if you want to tell those stories, if you want to talk about the, those issues, like you're just going to have to work. Then, you know, disability history is going to have to adapt to the slow, weird death that academia is experiencing with the humanities, um, because I don't think there's going to be an expansion uh, that includes it, unless it's like Kelsey said, where something horrible happens. <laughs> and the only thing I can imagine immediately in the most sci-fi of ways is that COVID-19 causes so much disability uh, amongst the population that then there's an interest in disability. And that's really dark. And I really don't hope that happens. Instead, we're just probably gonna have to work really hard, you know, to keep disability history afloat. Well, thankfully we do have a wonderful community of scholars who seem uh, more than up to the challenge of keeping this field going. Thank you so much for joining us today, Leah. I had such a wonderful time speaking with you. I know that Caroline did as well. And we're just so excited to share all of these stories that you told to us with our listeners. So thank you so much. Thank y'all. Thanks to everyone out there for listening or reading the transcript. Please join us again next time. Bye-bye.